Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm Tad. You can find me at Tad Predicts or on the podcast, A Tad Predictable, uh, and the Twitter handle at A Tad Predictable. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I cover Premier League football for, for various places as a football writer. I actually support Burnley, but um, I want to talk about other teams today unfortunately just 36 ish more matches uh until <laughs> we can get back into burnley but uh fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed but yeah uh i guess we'll start off by talking about a different club that one of us supports uh which is tottenham hotspur obviously a 2-2 draw with chelsea at stanford bridge just about the best result tottenham can get in that accursed stadium um but obviously there's a million talking points to come away from this match um but we were talking a little bit uh before we hit record about this sense that all of us had that like what we felt were going to be called as fouls weren't fouls and i was curious if you felt like that was a refereeing decision by the individual on the day or if that's just like a general thing that's been happening lately where people become less and less confident from their own internal compass about what's going to be called and what won't yeah i definitely need to change my compass um I've watched a couple of games this weekend and there's at least three occasions in those games where I'm thinking, all right, that's a foul. And and then it doesn't get blown up for a foul. Um, the interesting thing is how quickly the players adjust to it because you can see at certain instances, players stop playing when yeah. they think it's a foul. Uh, we saw that in the Nottingham Forest West Ham game where the goal eventually gets ruled out. But the ref played on, the players seem to stop playing and West Ham go on to score a goal. Sometimes those aren't reversed, you know, in, in, in the Premier League. So those could have dire consequences in the future. So the players certainly need to adjust a lot quicker than I might adjust to it. But yeah, it's certainly something that we're going to have to adjust to as long as the Premier League is consistent with it. If they're going to do this rule, let it be the rule for the entire season. My only worry is... It's just going to take one really bad challenge where there's a bad injury afterwards and the media will get on them for allowing too many of these type of challenges or whatever. And then they're going to cower back, change the rules again. And for me, that then creates a bit of inconsistency and unfairness in the league. If this is the rule, let it be the rule for the rest of the season. Talk to the clubs, explain it to them, tell them we're not changing it. Tell the media that they're not going to change this rule um, and then let's go forward with it. If not, then just give us some sort of clarity, really. Yeah, I agree. I think we've seen in previous seasons where there's been similar situations where certain things are being clamped down on more or being allowed to go more. Like we had a season where we were talking about this before we started recording. And there was a season where holding from 
set pieces was punished a lot. We saw a lot of penalties given for soft, nothing really fouls, really, just a shirt tug in the box. The thing that happens all the time. The handball rule was the same, it seemed to get changed mid season. So, completely agree with Tad that if this is now the rule, this is how it needs to be for the whole season. I think it is quite interesting that it's this season, which there's so much pressure on the, the players to stay fit throughout a campaign that's got the World Cup in the middle of it. And now we're saying that the Premier League is going to be rougher, more physical. Um, particularly strange watching the games this weekend. We've had a heat wave again in the, the UK, so we've had drinks breaks and stuff. And then the players take on their fluids, they have their energy gels, and then just start smashing into each other for another 25 minutes. <laughs> um, it's quite a spectacle. I actually like seeing games this way. I think football is a contact sport. We should have that physical aspect. Um, and I actually felt the the West Ham goal that was ruled out for Antonio clashing with the defender. I thought that was nonsense. I thought it was just they just ran into each other. I thought that was fine. Hmm. Um, so I think the consistency is the key. That's what we always ask for. The problem is it's still human beings making the decisions until I get my way and we have robot referees. That's going to be the case. Um, and I think VAR plays a part as well, unfortunately. I know I, no one wants to talk about VAR. I don't want to talk about VAR. But it does <laughs> seem like referees are more willing to let things go, knowing that VAR is going to have another look at it afterwards. So it's like, But it's only there for four things. Well, allegedly. But then they <laughs> check every goal for everything. So, yeah, I think the, the scope of VAR seems to be in constant evolution. But I think that is part of the reason why we are seeing fouls that are maybe borderline and probably would have been given last season. They're being allowed to go, knowing that the VAR is there to take a second look. Yeah, I think in this game in particular, it was a lot of those like defender kind of pushing the the attacking player from behind, uh, varying levels of intensity. But just none of it was being called. If somebody like came full force through the back of somebody, or if somebody just like gave a gentle nudge. All of it seemed to be fair play today, so there did certainly seem to be inconsistency. And we don't love always talking about refereeing decisions, but I think this is a good one to bring up because I think a lot of people are probably feeling this way that their sense of what will be called as a foul isn't exactly lining up with what is at the moment. Uh, it was also a pretty fascinating match on the whole. Even I and the most ardent uh, Spurs supporters, which may or may not be the same thing, um, wouldn't argue <laughs> that Chelsea uh, were anything other than the better side today. Uh Obviously, Tuchel very uh, inflammatory in his post-match comments, basically listing every single decision he felt went against his side. I think there were just a lot of wrong decisions in general. Um, but but on the pitch, I assume no no disagreement that it was Chelsea's best on the day, but obviously better for Tottenham that they're the ones that got the draw. Yeah, look, in, especially in the, the games with the, in inverted commas, traditional big six, if you'd play badly, just come away with a point. Just come away with something to to show for the game. Uh, and especially if it's away from home. Um, I don't know if Spurs' aspirations are going for the league this season. For me, I think that might be a bit of a stretch. I think they'll be in and around it until maybe the, you know, December, January, February time. But when the Champions League knockout stages start going into the later stages, which I'm expecting Spurs to be in those in the in those games I think their eye might be turned towards Champions League a bit more than the league and then they fall away a bit but for me top four you don't need to beat the big six in inverted commas traditionally big six teams you just need to 
beat everyone else and you'll make it into top four. If Spurs' aspirations are to to challenge and, and win the Premier League, then maybe at least the home games with the top six, then you have to be winning those. The away games, just make sure you don't lose them. But for me, a draw against Chelsea, it came about in the perfect way for Spurs with getting you know a late equaliser, especially in controversial fashion. I think that usually spurs players on. Um, no pun intended there. But yeah, a draw away to Chelsea is a great result for Spurs, more so when you haven't played that well. Yeah, I mean, even leaving aside all the refereeing decisions that Chelsea were obviously so unhappy about, on the balance of play, Chelsea were quite dominant. Um, I think the way that Chelsea play, under Thomas Tuchel in particular, is having this sort of extreme level of control, um, sort of risk-averse football in a way, which means they can have a lot of possession and not necessarily create clear-cut chances with it. Um, A lot of the chances they seem to create seem to come from the game breaking down and then something chaotic happening and the chance comes from there rather than they've had the ball for two minutes and then they create a chance, if that makes sense. Um, I think Spurs will probably be delighted to get a point. Like Tad says, you don't want to lose these games. It's probably a good time for them to play Chelsea when they're still putting the squad together. It's been such Mm -hmm. a weird summer at Stamford Bridge with the new owners and all the old people off the pitch. I suspect Chelsea are going to be really busy in the transfer market for the next couple of weeks. So... Chelsea's attack, especially, could look very different um, next month. So Spurs will probably be quite happy to get them out of the way before they spend however much they're going to spend. Um, I did think some of the pre-match stuff was quite interesting. The way Spurs were being talked of as if they should be favourites for this game, even though they managed to lose four times out of four to Chelsea last <laughs> season. Sorry to remind you of that, Kev. Um and Thomas Tuchel's record against Spurs is even better. He won every single game against Spurs, only in like, all competitions throughout his career, um, which is a bit strange. So, yeah, I think it was a really good game for the neutrals. Well, one of the things that I've enjoyed in the early weeks of the season, having no dog in the fight whatsoever now, obviously, like, Chelsea v Spurs didn't really affect Burnley anyway, but I think I enjoy it even more as a neutral now. I can just watch these games and... I'm not worried about teams trying to buy our players or anything. It's just like pure football in my eyes. It's great. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I think you guys make some excellent points there. And I do think it benefits Tottenham more. But I think it also shows that Chelsea aren't as like buried as I think a lot of people thought they'd be or or chose to think that they'd be. Uh, Maybe myself included. Because I think a lot of people were just looking at third place. Like, who's more likely to get there? Is it Tottenham or Chelsea? And because of all of Chelsea's issues and because Tottenham have been on a positive upswing since, like, April, everybody everybody just assumed it's Tottenham in the long term and then applied that to the short term. But like you said, Tottenham have not had a lot of success against Tuchel, against Chelsea, at Stamford Bridge, where I think that's now one win in the last 38. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> uh, I definitely did not go into this match expecting a win, and it didn't happen. But, yeah, the draw... Very much felt like one. Um, Another team that didn't manage to get a win this weekend was Manchester United. And this probably would have been the biggest talking point of the week if not for the insanity at the end with Conte and Tuchel and the goal and the VAR and the refereeing and everything. Uh, But it, of course, was Manchester United's really, really significant loss to Brentford. Um, 4-0, it ended up being that all happened in, in the first half and I think the first like 30 minutes, if memory serves. Um, literally bottom of the table at time of recording, 
Uh, obviously, Ten Hag, when he was hired, said, you know, the manager can't work magic. Uh, maybe people expected more. They're already seeing DeBoer comparisons, who obviously had that terrible time in the start and very brief existence of his tenure at Crystal Palace. And I'm just curious, from your guys' perspective, who is most to blame for at least this slow start to the season, if not this kind of overarching malaise that's taken over the club? I, I guess the blame does have to come from the top, from the Glazers. Um, but I think probably I, I'm going to give them slightly a pass because I'm going to say they don't know any better. They're, it seems to me they're leaning on um, some of the players and past managers or people of influence at the club that continue to have influence up. It is probably um, blasphemy to say, you know, to put some blame on Sir Alex Ferguson. But if the fact that Sir Alex Ferguson gets called in whenever there's an issue, you know, when Ronaldo doesn't want to come train or something, Sir Alex is the one that gets called. When there are issues about who should be hired as a manager, Sir Alex is the one whose opinion is counted at how much influence does he still have at the club? And if he does, he has to take some of the blame for this, um, in my opinion. Because for me, the Glazers are happy enough for the financial side of things to look good. Um, if the football side looks good as well, obviously great for them, but it's not as big a concern as the financial side of things. Um, so then who are the people that are taking care of the football side of things? At the head of that for me is Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, I don't know if there are other people that are involved, but he seems to be the one that they go to whenever there there are issues. At the very least, a club at the, you know the size of Manchester United should have a sporting director in place. And the fact that they don't have, and the fact that they haven't brought someone in, even when they were so close to bringing in someone like uh, Ranyak, who obviously came in as a manager and then was going to transition into that kind of role that deal breaks down in my opinion because he hurt a lot of feelings he spoke a lot of truths um which obviously people didn't want to hear and all of a sudden he's out of the picture so for me there are people there behind the scenes that i think from past regimes um and i'm i guess i'm using sir alex as the focal point or the the image of that entire era that are having an influence of how the club is run and not giving it a sense of direction. They, they, it's so fundamental in that the whole club has to pull in one direction. We've seen it um, you know, with clubs in the past that have been successful. The one thing they all seem to have is that everyone is pulling in the right direction. And you look at a manager like uh, Eric Ten Hag, he comes into the club, obviously the certain players that are already there that he's not going to be able to sell just because either the wages that they're on or because they're so ingrained in United culture, he's not going to be allowed to sell them. Already there, we know it's not his team. You know, he he, he can't come in there and say, I want to sell, you know, Marcus Rashford or Cristiano Ronaldo or something because we know there's going to be pushback. So the people above him that do allow those kind of things, what is the direction that the club is going at? And until they figure out that, then anything below that is going to be an issue. Basic example, Eric Ten Hag comes in. We know he likes to play football from the back. De Gea, not so good with his feet, not so good mm -hmm. when his team plays with a high line. So you know De Gea is going to be an issue. Now, could Ten Hag come in 
and move De Gea on and let's say keep Henderson, chances are probably won't be, be, be allowed to do that. And we've seen how it's transpired now. De Gea, as great as he is and as great as he's been in the Premier League, he doesn't suit that style of football. Then you bring in centre-backs. Um, you've got Harry Maguire, who can't play in a high line because of pace. Um, and he's got partners in Varane who can't play in a deep block because of, I think, he, he relies on his pace. So he can fit the high pace, but he can't fit the low block. So now you've got two guys that play different styles of football. Then you bring in Martinez to come in to play centre-back. Um, he could probably play in a high line. But once again, you start him next to Maguire, who can't play in a high line. There's confusion there. So there's so many things that's disjointed at the club that at the bare minimum, let's all pull in the right direction. And the biggest example of that is, I always say, if a club is pulling in the right direction, you can tell by the managers that they hire in that those managers are similar in style. And if you look at the past four or five Man United managers, their styles are all very different. And of course, you're going to end up with a squad of players that play different styles of football because each manager is coming in trying to bring in players that suits their style of football and it doesn't work. So first and foremost, the blame has to be near the top. I don't know if I put all the blame on the Glazers because Gary Neville did this whole rant about they don't invest in the club, they take money out. They've spent a billion pounds on transfers. So the money is there to make transfers. I just don't think they have one person that is clearly out in the public, known to everyone, to give direction to the club of where we're pulling, you know, where where are we pulling all of our resources towards from an on-field type of thing. Off, off the field, phenomenal job. They do well. We know the revenues that they bring in. I don't think there's an issue that side. But they need to bring in someone to do the on the pitch side of stuff. If it's going to be Sir Alex, let him come in and be the official sporting director. But him coming in every now and then to solve problems and stuff just undermines anything that anyone's trying to do. Yeah, I think what I'd add on the, the Sir Alex thing as well is that, yes, United won the league in his last season in charge, but the drift had already started. The state of the squad when David Moyes mm. took over needed a lot of work. So... The problems that Manchester United date all the way back there, we're not just talking about the last five years, we're talking about 10 years, maybe towards 15 years. It's a long, long time that that club's been in trouble. Um, and I don't think you can just pin it on one person. I don't think it's fair to just blame everything on the Glazers. Like Tad says, there's been a loss of money spent on that team and on that squad, and it's been spent badly. You look at 80 million for Harry Maguire is a perfectly good example. Maguire was a good centre-back for Leicester, but who on earth thought he was worth 80 million pounds and was going to be good enough to play for Man United? It's a funny one. Um, I think there is a lack of football expertise off the, the pitch at United. I know they brought in Darren Fletcher to do some technical role, but um, Ed Woodward obviously got a lot of flack for his negotiations. He wasn't really a football person. Richard Arnold seems to have replaced him in the sort of chief executive type role or managing director, whatever they're calling that job. Again, not a football person. Um, so I think that just sort of permeates all the way through. And like Tad says, the managers are completely different. Oli Gunnar Solskjaer wasn't a good manager, but he actually had them 
playing in a system that works. He wanted them to counterattack because he worked out that that was going to be the most effective from the players that were there. And then obviously they signed Cristiano Ronaldo, which threw that whole plan out of the, the window because Ronaldo wasn't going to be fast enough to press um, to play on the counter-attack. And he's similarly ill-suited to Ten Hag's system because he can't press because he, he's not mobile enough to do that anymore. So I think the squad is a mess. I don't know what what tactical system would now be suitable. I think recruitment has been a gigantic problem there. You look at the players that are available and there just aren't very many good ones. Um, but there's something there's something just very, very wrong at that club. Even when they sign players that seem they seem like good deals, when they sign Jadon Sancho, Sancho was one of the best players in the Bundesliga, had played well for England, young talent, very exciting, the fee seemed good, everything seemed right for Sancho to be a success at Man United. He's been absolutely terrible. He's been so bad. It's it's extremely confusing. And then you see players like Marcus Rashford, who their form and confidence has just disappeared over the course of the last sort of 12, 18 months. These aren't necessarily bad players, but they are playing badly. So I think there's there's responsibility on the players themselves as well. Like some some of them are quite bad, I would say. Like Harry Maguire has no he's got no He's got no business being at Manchester United, Harry Maguire, let's be honest. He just shouldn't or be being a their captain. Well, certainly. And that's what I was going to come on to with Ten Hag. Obviously, it's two two games. Um, but for, for a guy who clearly sees football in such an in-depth way, he's made some really bad decisions already. Allowing Maguire to stay captain. No, terrible. Maybe there's not many obvious alternatives within the squad, but Harry Maguire can't be the captain of Manchester United. He just can't. It's not going to work. But is the worry not, is he allowed to change Harry Maguire's captain? That's my concern. Maybe. Genuinely speaking, is he allowed to come in and get a new captain on board? Or is is he coming in with the understanding that, well, Harry Maguire is the captain of this team? Well, the thing because, be, as you say, he's he's a really smart football man, but some of the decisions he's making are so obviously against his philosophy that it, it does makes make me you wonder, wonder if there's if there's other stuff going on. Yeah, but there, there was the whole debate over Maguire and Ten Hag seemed to be obviously what managers say in the media isn't necessarily a reflection of what's going on inside a club because managers lie to the media all the time. Um, but he did seem to be making it clear that Maguire was. A decision that was in play, um, but yeah, I just think the the tactics that Ten Hag has played so far are, are just they're doomed to fail. You can't have De Gea and Maguire trying to play out from the back like that. It's a recipe for disaster. And Brentford won four 0 and it could have been more. It was an absolute humiliation. The first game he's got Christian Eriksen, who's a rare smart signing, I would say, in that he's addressed a weakness in the squad. The first game, they've got Ericsson playing as a false nine. When has Christian Ericsson ever played as a false nine? Then the second game, Christian Ericsson's the deepest midfielder. Like, hang, why did you sign him if you've got no idea how you're going to use him? It's so strange. Like, is Ericsson not a number 10? And if Ericsson's a number 10, then Bruno Fernandes is also a number 10. So it's like, why are these guys going to play together? It's, it's very strange. I do feel for Ten Hag, though, because I think the... 
the Ronaldo side show that's obviously dominated pre-season and the early weeks of the season has been a massive headache for him. He's got enough on his plate trying to revamp that squad and the squad needs so much work to then have Ronaldo saying that he wants to go even though there's nowhere obvious for him to go. It just gives him another problem. Um, and then with Martial being injured as well, he's not had a choice but to play Ronaldo really. Whereas a strong manager who's as Tad is indicating, a strong manager who's got the whole back end of the club behind him might have been able to say, well, Ronaldo, if you don't want to play for the club, you're not going to play for the club and just leave him out. Um, but I don't think he's been able to do that because of the other players that are available. So, yeah, I think summing it up is really difficult, but recruitment has been probably the major area there. And you look at the Manchester United squad now and there's probably a handful of players that are Man United players. Yeah, I think you guys make some really good points about that kind of split nature within the squad where they're making some signings that just inherently aren't good signings. And they also have players that have been around for five years under three plus different managers. Uh, none of that makes for a very cohesive side. Um, I understand a lot of people don't really want to blame Ten Hag this early because obviously their issues existed before him and very potentially could exist after him. If they had gone for Antonio Conte last fall, or if they had gone for Pochettino in the summer, do you think anything would be different or would it largely be the same thing where there's not a manager with a singular style that matches all these players because they have been signed through so many different regimes? I genuinely think they're too scared to sign an Antonio Conte after what happened with Mourinho. Mourinho wasn't scared to call out the BS when BS was happening at the club. And I don't think they like that a lot. Um, as I said, I think there's a lot of egos that are being bruised and hurt by the criticism and, and they're not liking that. Ten Hag isn't going to come into Man United and start demanding things. He just, as good as he was at Ajax, he just doesn't have that kind of reputation to back himself to go in there and, and just start demanding things. Conte comes in and he tells you the way it is. As you would know, Kev, Conte doesn't doesn't mess around. Like if something's <laughs> wrong, he's going to say it. Um, it's the same, we saw it with Mourinho there. When he was there, whenever something was wrong, Mourinho said it. And I don't think Man United wanted another manager in that was as upfront with with the criticisms of the club. And yeah, that, that, that then leads to hiring someone like Ten Hag, who, as I said, good manager and everything, but he's not going to stand up to the club and, and, and tell it like it is when it needs to be said. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think Conte is so demanding and the clubs that hire Conte now know that. And I think we saw at Spurs, it took a little while for them to sort of get used to, hang on a minute, we spent all this time trying to get Antonio Conte and he's already making noises about wanting to leave. Are we actually going to give him what he wants and like fully commit to this, I hate the word, project? But are we going to commit to the Antonio Conte project, knowing that he's a serial winner who delivers titles everywhere he's been? Um, or are we going to let him slip through our fingers? I, I did think it was bizarre at the time that they didn't go for Conte. When he was available, when Solskjaer was a dead man walking, it, it was just so obvious that Conte should have been the next Man United manager. Um, and I think he would have handled this summer certainly different with the Ronaldo situation. I can't imagine Ronaldo would have been playing if Conte was in charge and he'd been as disrespectful as he has been, in my opinion, to the club um, in the way that he's, he's acted over the summer. So I, I do think some things would have been different, but I just don't know if, if United's fixable. I don't know if 
a manager can come in and just magically fix everything that's wrong with that club. There's so much that he's doing. It's going to be a long-term thing with getting rid of those players that we've talked about who aren't good enough, trying to build a squad that is more cohesive. And they need to get back to sort of Man United core values, developing their own players instead of spending all this money on on players who aren't necessarily any better than what they already have. Um, so I think it's it's going to be a long, long road for them to get back. But having talked about recruitment, it's obvious that they need to to try and fix what they can right now in, in the transfer market. And they've still got time to do that. There should be money to spend. If they get a couple of the right players in there, maybe things will look different. But at the moment, I think Eric Ten Hag's probably having a lot of sleepless nights, wondering if he's made the right decision taking that job. Yeah, I, I agree. It's destroyed people's reputations before, and it could well after. Although you could eventually get to the PSG thing where like so many good managers fail there, where you have to be like, mm, maybe it's not those guys anymore. Um, but yeah, time will tell. But I agree. I don't think any manager could have walked into that and had immediate success. Maybe avoided two defeats to start the season and being bottom of the table after two weeks. But, yeah, I think the issues are much larger than that as well. Uh, unfortunately, in that segment, we didn't really get to talk about how terrific Brentford were. Uh, they were pretty good. Uh, obviously, Manchester United shooting themselves in the foot a few times. But uh, in a different match, we'll be sure to talk about the club uh, who did end up winning. That is Nottingham Forest, um, who had a pretty strong start to the season. Results in both of their first two matches. Obviously, the win today against West Ham, I th- think I saw was their first Premier League win at home since 1999. Ooh, shouldn't have gone out on that limb, but I think that's what it said. Um, but anyway, so many people coming into the season just assumed they were going to be relegation fodder. Uh, obviously, 15 new players into the club is pretty shocking, but I think it's 17 that have, have gone. So the numbers kind of balance out in that way, but it's obviously a lot of new faces around the place uh, in one window. Uh, I'm just curious if you guys think they can find success with that many changes to the squad in, in one window. And obviously they have gotten off to a pretty good start. Yeah, I, I think the start is the really important thing for them is try and get as many points on the board as we can whilst everyone's still figuring out, you know, where where the toilets are and, and, and all the other things that come with being a new player. <laughs> um, it's it's incredible the amount of business that they have done this window. Um whoever's in charge of of their transfer committee so to speak probably needs a big holiday after this transfer window but i think the the interesting thing for me is that they seem to have gone with the philosophy of we're going to give this the best go we possibly can and we've seen clubs do it in the past um you know i think fulham did it one one season where they just bought a whole lot of players and the players didn't get enough time to gel but I think the interesting thing with Nottingham Forest, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they seem to be quite um, heavily reliant on data an- uh, analysis and, and being quite data-driven in their signings and trying to go for players who maybe might be slightly under the radar or not necessarily being picked up by by, by people. I mean... I think they've got that philosophy and then they've also gone and said, look, if a Lingard is free, let's just go get him because he's a match winner. You know, they, they've got that blend of, okay, we've got the data guys in coming in, um, the IOUs um, coming in who was doing really well in, in, in the Bundesliga and was playing well there. Let's bring him in. He looks aggressive, strong, pacey. He could cause problems for teams. Um, 
And then on the other side, they've also got players like the Lingards and potentially the the hours coming in where it's just like, look, if he's available and we can get him, let's take a punter that if we land him, great. Uh, and we'll see how it goes from there. But yeah, I, I like the fact that they're being aggressive. I like the fact that they're intentional with their signings. It's not just signing everyone and anyone. It's signing people for a reason. And then um, the, the third, I guess, point in that triangle would be have a really, really good manager. And Steve Cooper seems to be doing really well for them. He's done well for them in the past in the championship. I think he's done uh, very well in the championship, not just um, with them, but but previous roles that he's had. And him coming to the Premier League, I think, is good validation for the sort of career he's had Um before that, and, and I think he's done a good job in, in the Premier League so far, it will be interesting to see if they're able to blend everyone together. But so far, so good in that get as many points as you can on the board. I mean, West Ham hit the bar so many times in that game. That result could have been very different. But just get the points on the board now until we've got everyone to kind of blend in and figure out exactly how we want to play. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think they might actually improve as the as the season goes on and these players do sort of start to gel together. They were obviously a bit disjointed on the opening weekend, which was unsurprising, losing at Newcastle. And then today they've got the result against West Ham. But I, I, they had a lot of luck in that game. Like West Ham had a penalty that was saved. They hit the bar a couple of times, like Ted was saying there. West Ham had a goal ruled out that could have stood on another day. There was a lot of things that went in Forest's favour. The goal that they scored was a fluke, really. Just hit the track and went in. So on on another day, I don't think they'll win that, that game. And then we're looking at Forest maybe having one point from two games or no points from two games, and it looks completely different. Um, I think the thing with the, the number of signings they've made is that they were always going to have to rebuild this team because, like a lot of teams in the Championship these days, they were so reliant on loans. I think they had five players on loan last season, most of them regular starters. None of them came back this year. Jed Spence, obviously one of them, came has gone to Spurs instead. A few other players have, have gone to other clubs and whether they've tried to get them back and not been able to, I'm not sure, but it means that they were already having to rebuild. So they did have to sign players. No one's saying don't sign any players. Um, but I think they're on 15 and they're still looking to do more. And you can only play 11 at once, right? <laughs> like, I know there's five subs this season, but <laughs> they're going to be signing players who just aren't going to play, which I don't think is great. It's tricky when you, you're signing so many players and a lot of them just don't want to contribute that much. Um, I think some of the fees are really inflated as well. Like £20 million for Nico Williams seems like a huge amount of money for someone with so little experience at that level. They're buying these guys in from other leagues. Maybe it is a data-driven approach, but I think Premier League experience counts for so much. And Forrest not having been in the Premier League for 23 years, Steve Cooper hasn't managed in the Premier League, that's something that they are lacking. Um, there's a really good article about this in, in The Guardian by Jonathan Wilson over the weekend. He, he basically made the point that it's, it's almost impossible to get these players to gel immediately. But the flip side is, is this is what Steve Cooper's been doing at Forrest. He's been building on the fly since he came in. Forrest were in danger of relegation when they appointed Steve Cooper. They were, had a desperately poor start to the season. And 
with some canny additions in January, he managed to turn them into promotion contenders and they got up through the playoffs. So this isn't necessarily going to be something that's new to Steve Cooper, having all these players come in and have to work out how to get the best of them. Um, but I do feel for them a little bit. I think you can be aggressive in the transfer market, but I think you, you'd probably draw a line at some point and think, I think we have enough players now. We need to work with what we've got. They still seem to be trying to sign more. They've spent in the region of 20 million two or three times already. Um, and maybe they'll prove to be good signings. Dennis from Watford has obviously done a good job in the Premier League last year for a time. Well, like he was going to be really good and then his form sort of fell fell off a little bit in the second half of the season. So they've tried to get value signings, but there's, you're spending sort of 20 million on a striker and then 20 million on another striker. You're not telling me Forrest is going to play two up front very often. So how are they going to fit all these players in? I think it's, it's a curious approach. Obviously, Tad's mentioned Fulham, who did much of the same a couple of years ago, signed a lot of players, spent about 100 million, went down. Villa were fairly similar a couple of years ago when they came up. Turned out it was Jack Grealish, who was already there, that basically kept them up on his own. Um, so maybe it'll actually be the players that Forrest already have that, that will continue to make the difference. Who knows? I think it's certainly one to watch. Yeah, you both make a lot of really good points, especially about the construction of the Nottingham Forest squad and how it had so many lone players. And that's, of course, a thing that dated back to his time at Swansea as well. Obviously, all of our old Swansea pals that uh, have not been on <laughs> recently, they did not come up very quickly, which hopefully is a fate Jamie and Burnley can avoid. But uh, as soon as he showed up at Swansea, all of a sudden he started getting all these young, uh, mostly English players, obviously, from his time uh, in England's youth setups as a coach. So... Uh, not new to him, just cobbling together a random collection of people and getting them to play well, play for each other. Uh, did he make the playoffs every year of, as a championship manager? I know it was Swansea twice. Was it Forrest just the once? Regardless, he's he's had success doing this. Um, so it's possible that it'll work out. I agree, it's going to be hard. Especially as you say, Jamie, you're going to bring in people that are like excited. They're going to a club like Nottingham Forest first year up in the Premier League oh, of course I'm going to go there and start. And then they're going to find out that they aren't. And then you have to wonder what the effect uh, that'll have on the dressing room will be. But yeah. ultimately, uh, like we're all saying, good start to the season. Kind of needed it to be a little lucky today, but they were they looked the better team for the first half hour of that match. Um, obviously, luck kind of benefited them in the end. But uh, they looked really good. Good manager. They're signing relatively good players. The, the question is, can they piece them all in together? And to kind of put a pin in that... Uh, you mentioned Fulham there, Tad. Uh, Fulham's crazy offseason where everyone was like, you can't sign that many players in one window. That's insane. Was 12. Fewer than what Nottingham oh, wow. Forest have done this window. So uh, it'll be a very interesting case study if they pull it off or yet another data point uh, in the trend of this being ultimately not very smart of an idea. Uh, but we'll take a break there and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, Tad, we'll start off with you talking Liverpool. Um, obviously, just the one match played thus far, but already a huge discussion has launched around the Liverpool fan base, which is the fate of Jordan Henderson, who... Uh, has already been a lightning pull for criticism the past two years, um, but it seems to really be whether or not he should be starting week in and week out for you. So I was just curious, what is your best midfield in your mind in theory, or does such a thing not exist and it's always dependent on opponents or situations? It seems we've moved to a horses for courses type scenario with our midfield, but in my opinion, I think our best midfield is Fabinho as the six. Thiago as the controlling left-sided midfielder, Naby Keita as the more advanced, uh, high-pressing midfielder. But the problem we have is Naby Keita and Thiago can't play in the same midfield because they always get injured. So it seems like the club has figured out how they're going to manage that is they're both going to occupy one position. So Naby and Thiago are both going to be the left-sided midfielder this season, and they're just going to rotate each other. And you hope that by doing that, them sharing those minutes there, they don't get injured. But obviously, Thiago then goes and gets injured. Um, so that plan didn't last long. But yeah, in terms of if it was a perfect world, injuries weren't an issue. It's that midfield of Thiago, Fab, and uh, Naby, or NFT, as it is affectionately known. Um, the issue with the the whole Henderson thing... I think it's more an English football issue, in my opinion, than than anything else, where in English football, the captain has to be on the pitch at all, almost at all times, leading, you know, the team through everything, picking the team up by the bootstraps type of player, et cetera, et cetera. Many other leagues, the captain can be just a club captain who could happily sit on the bench. They're just the ambassador of the club whether they start games or they don't start games, isn't as controversial as it seems to be in 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 the UK. For example, I don't understand why you have to remove Mings as captain just because he's not starting games anymore. He seemed perfectly fine as the captain of Aston Villa. Um, there didn't seem to be any issues, unless there were issues off the pitch. But just keep him as captain, just don't start him. But anyway, um, so for me, the issue with Henderson, uh, I guess with a lot of people is, He's been the captain through one of the more successful, especially in modern history, one of the more successful times for Liverpool. And Liverpool fans tend to value what you've done for the club a lot. So whether or not the argument is, is Henderson good enough right now with the injuries, with the age, with the way the club plays, that's not really entered into the conversation. It's how can you take away the guy that's brought us so much, et cetera, et cetera, in the past. And for me, I don't look at it that way. I think he's perfectly good as the backup six to Fabinho. And he could come into games as a, you know, 
squad rotation player coming into games because we play enough games. We've been fortunate enough to play enough games under Klopp that everyone's going to get a game. He's going to play games. You know he's going to get to play games. Um, my issue with the midfield was, um, so before any transfer window with mo with all the teams, I look at the teams, I say, what do they need? What do they need to get rid of, etc.? For me, that right side of midfield, I, I wrote down having a player to play in the big games for that right-sided midfield. So I don't mind Henderson playing against teams maybe that aren't as strong on paper as Liverpool as the right-sided midfielder. I have no issue with him playing there. My issue comes in when we're playing at Chelsea, for example, that are very bullish in midfield and Henderson gets pressed to death because he's the weak link, so they know to press him, and he just starts losing the ball left, right, and center. That's my issue. Do we have a player that can come in for those situations? For me, because we've decided that Thiago and Naby have to share the left side of the pitch, we don't have that player on the right side of the pitch anymore. It's it's not fair to expect the, the kids to do it in the Harvey Elliotts, the Cavalios, whoever else, Curtis Jones, if you want to throw him in there as well. They're too young to do it at a consistent level for the type of bar that Man City have set now for the league, which is you have to get 90 points just to enter the conversation. You can't expect Harvey Elliott to play at that standard for an entire season. I think that's unfair. He's still growing. You want to sprinkle him into games, let him grow naturally. So for me, Liverpool, the glaring weakness in the team is that right-sided midfielder and you can't categorically go out and claim, we Liverpool fans love to claim our recruitment staff is the best in the business. And we've seen, you know, the results of what they've done in the past. They are, you know, they, they can have that conversation and argue for it. But you can't claim that we have one of the best recruitment teams in the world and then turn around and say, we can't find a better midfielder to play on that right-hand side than this current version of Jordan Henderson. I don't see how those two things, like pick a struggle, either it's one or the other. So for me, I appreciate everything he's done for us with the club. I just think right now, Jordan Henderson shouldn't be starting in the bigger games for Liverpool on the right side of midfield. Doesn't really affect what I think about what he's done in the past for Liverpool. Um, it's more about what can he produce right now in this moment for a team that has to live up to the standards of what Man City have set up in the league. Um, yeah. Gotcha. And then another uh, player of interest for me is Joe Gomez, who a few years ago looked to be like one of the brightest young English defensive prospects. Obviously, injuries hampered him, being split kind of between that right back and the center back position. Uh, it never helps when you split your development while trying to learn two different positions. But now Matip is carrying a groin injury. Um, Kanate is out for months. Is this a chance for Joe Gomez to reestablish himself or, or at least his profile as a young, talented player? Or do you think he's more of a bit part player for Liverpool now and, and in general? Well, he's kind of getting thrown in the deep end now, isn't he? Um, I think the plan for Joe Gomez was because of the injury that he did suffer. And as you mentioned, he has had a couple of injuries in the past. I think the reason they played him at right back last season a lot, um, obviously deputizing for Trent, was when he's playing right back, majority of the time he's running vertical, like forwards and backwards. He's not having to do a lot of turning and twisting and kind of things that you don't want with the type of injuries that he's had 
coming back from such a long-term injury. At least I'm just running up and down. I don't have to do too many twists and turns. I think that's how they were managing his progression from, you know, his his rehabilitation from the injury. I wouldn't have been surprised if he would have been the backup right back this season, um, maybe sprinkled into center back at times as well. But just to continue that, that it seemed like a very deliberate rehabilitation in that let's try and get this right this you know this time around to prevent him suffering from injuries going forward and the fortunate thing for him was we ha- we now had enough center backs that we didn't have to rush him into any situations we didn't want to it was a very controlled rehabilitation of the player who obviously is now just signed a a, a brand new contract so I believe would have eventually gotten back into center back once probably a Joel Matip say gets sold, Konate becomes the starter next to Van Dijk, Gomez becomes the third choice. Like you could see the long-term intentional plan with him. Now he's been thrown straight into the deep end, um, in a in you know starting center back week in week out at a time when I don't think Liverpool were, or at least the plan that they had for him was ready for him to start games that soon. So the only worry for me is, does he get injured again? Um, hopefully not. Uh, hopefully he does establish himself as, as you said, one of the promising centre-backs um, that were in, in the league. For me, I, I think in terms of talent, I think he's one of the better English centre-backs. Um, hopefully that he can show that this time around and re-establish himself um, in contention for that centre-back stop. But yeah, I think for the club, it's unfortunate that they've had those centre-back injuries because I don't think the plan would have been to to make, you know, to, to get him so intensely involved in in matches this early on. And I said this early on, it's almost a year now uh, since he's come back from the injury. But I still think the club were being very, very cautious with him. Makes sense. We'll certainly hope he can stay fit and, uh, as you say, kind of getting thrown in the deep end. So we'll find out very quickly whether or not he can uh, kind of recapture the promise that he once showed. Uh, Well, Jamie, not to be incredibly rude, but since Burnley aren't in the Premier League and this is called the EPL Roundtable, it feels a little weird. Uh, But you mentioned you might have a Spurs question or two for me. Yeah, uh, it's probably going to be more interesting for listeners and and second-tier football. They're going to pretend it doesn't exist. I think one of the interesting things about Spurs so far this season is that they've seemed reluctant to use the new signings. Obviously, like it's fine to gradually introduce these players into the team, but Conte's comments about the signings seem to suggest that he's not fully sold on some of them. What do you make of the fact that none of his new signings have, have started yet, considering so much was made of Spurs doing really good business in the transfer window? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, do I think he's unimpressed by any of the new signings well i think the first part of this is that how many of the people that we signed were expected to break our regular 11 because obviously fraser forster wasn't basuma's kind of debatable probably over bentoncourt long term um parasitch over sassignan you probably would have expected that's probably the one that hasn't happened yet but richarlison wasn't ever really going to unseat any of the front three so i do think that's a an, an element worth noting is expectations wise not many of them were just going to walk in. Was Longley, after all the struggles at Barcelona, going to automatically start above Ben Davis, and now he's hurt anyway? Um, probably not. So I think that's part of it. I think what Conte was so excited about was adding the depth that we had so that the drop-off between the starting 11 and everybody else was going to be less significant. Um, 
I was a little surprised that Sessegnon started today, even after he had a fantastic match last week. I thought Conte would have gone with Perisic in his kind of big game experience. Um, and Sessegnon did struggle today. Uh, but he was also being double teamed by players that were supposed to be a wing back and a center back because there was so little threat going forward that Reese James and I almost said Oxlade Chamberlain. Nope. Uh, Loftus Sheik. There we go. Um, wrong hyphenated name. Uh, we're able to just kind of constantly attack him and pin him back so he's never able to really get forward. Um, and we did eventually see Sessegnon come up early for the extra forward, which was Richarlison, and then Perisic coming on later in the match. Um, so I think that could be part of it. Um, I think the other aspect that may have been underreported is injuries and COVID. Forster and Basuma both got COVID on the South Korean tour and weren't able to really be involved in that really formative period of the preseason, not only missing the Korean section, but also missing the first few days back in England. Um, Basuma also, I feel like, had a slight knock. Perisic came in, and Perisic and Doherty both have apparently not reached full fitness yet, um, which might be why we haven't seen them. Richarlison was suspended for the first match. Um, I feel like I'm kind of like dodging the question by just <laughs> pointing out external things. I guess my answer is I, I just wouldn't be too worried about it yet. Uh, I think Perisic eventually does supplant Sassignon. I think Doherty does eventually supplant Emerson on the right. But other than that, maybe Basuma comes in. But I, I think the point wasn't that you're going to have these different players immediately take their place in the 11. I'm assuming Conte's hope is to basically do what that was what Tad was just talking about with Liverpool and eventually play different midfielders. So if you're wanting to go extra defensive, you can go, you know, Basuma and Hoybier. If you're wanting to be more double pivoty, it could be, well, I guess it's Basuma again, Basuma and Bentoncourt uh, and just kind of adjust based on that. But I wouldn't be too worried about it yet, but I can totally understand why from an external perspective, people are like, uh, why is your 11 the exact same way it was the last five weeks of last season after spending whatever, a hundred million on five new players? I suppose the flip side is that I suppose we're getting really good results at the end of last season, so <laughs> why would we necessarily need to change it, right? Um, yeah. One one new signing who did make a difference in the Chelsea game, though, was Richard Allison. Mm. What was interesting is that he came on and supplemented what was already on the pitch in the front three that we know Spurs are going to play most of the time. Um, how do you think Richarlison's going to fit in? Because it, it's a lot of money to spend on someone to just be cover. For Kane and Son, obviously you can mix him in and rotate and rest a bit more. But do you see any situation where the front four can all play at the same time? Is that going to be far too attacking for Conte to try? I mean, this is a fascinating question, and we saw both the good and the bad of it today. Obviously, when we went to the four-two-four to get all four of them on at the same time, and then almost immediately conceded. I would contend it was a foul on Kulisevsky, and there are like a thousand what-about-isms that you could throw in about all the other instances in that match, but uh, that was the chance, right? Is you get the goal because you have these four forwards on, and then you concede because you have those four forwards on, um, and basically no midfield presence and one less defender. Um, I think that stylistically, he's the best replacement for Sun. Rather than Kulisevsky, I think a lot of people assumed it was like Kulisevsky versus Richarlison for that third spot. Um, but stylistically, they offer way different things. Because I think the thing people have failed to notice about Kulisevsky, not that they failed to notice him in general, because he's obviously been fantastic and has loads of goals and assists in very few matches, is that Kulisevsky allows Kane and Son to be your two most forward players. Because he's a bit slower, likes to create more, likes to sit on the ball, beat players with technique and strength rather than speed. Um, so that means that 
instead of Kane being your main creator, Kulisewski can kind of take over that role and let Kane and Son be the ones scoring goals, which historically they've been very good at. I think Richarlison is a better replacement for Son, the way he likes to start out wide, drift inside, uh, capable in the air, not terrible with both feet. You want him cutting in to start shooting. Um, so I think that's why you're not going to see him start a whole lot of matches. I think the best chance for him to get loads of matches would be if you get one of those good Champions League groups where it's like a team that's way better than you, you and two terrible teams. Um, and then he automatically starts those. And I assume he's going to be starting up front probably in the Carabao Cup matches because while I think he stylistically is the best replacement for Sun, the point is that there's finally somebody that can wear the number nine shirt and back up Kane. So I assume in those alternative in those other competitions, we'll see him start up front. But uh, kind of like we were just saying, I don't really see him supplanting any of the front three. And if he did, it's probably because of injury or because of fatigue. Or maybe Conte gets to look ahead of things. It'd be like, listen, Suns played 90 minutes in five straight league matches. He can't keep that up. And then preemptively try to avoid fatigue and injury like that. Maybe in those situations. But you're not wrong. It is insane that we spent 50 plus 10. Um, and it seems like those uh, variables are pretty easy to reach. So probably 60 million on a player that doesn't immediately walk into the 11. But that's kind of what Conte was demanding, was players that will strengthen the squad that mean that he doesn't have that big drop-off when they come off. But uh, yeah, pr pretty surprising that <laughs> we spent that much on a player that, to your point, is probably just a very high-end bench option. Um, but yeah, we'll go from there into a quick version of Player Watch, where I just wanted to ask you guys, with two weeks left in the window, which position does your club most need to address? And Jamie, that includes Burnley. I've, I've kind of buried the lead on that one, haven't I? Um, a right-sided midfielder for Liverpool, please. <laughs> um, yeah, I've, I've given a lot of the reasons why they need to sign that player. Um, I think, as I said, Henderson is perfectly fine as either the right-sided midfielder against maybe some of the lesser teams, and I hope I'm not being disrespectful in saying that, um, or as the, the backup six to Fabinho. Um, I think he can service a role there and they need someone to come in and be that creative link between the offense and, and the midfield on that right-hand side, be a goal threat as well. Like Liverpool don't score a lot of goals from midfield um, and that right side of midfield is meant to be involved in that side of things. And we don't often see that. So they've been linked to a whole lot of players. Um, they have the money that's that's some of the you know arguments that I've heard. I, I can confidently guarantee you that Liverpool have the money to sign a midfielder if they need to sign one or if they want to sign one, should I say. Um, but then also, am I optimistic that they will do it? I'm not because um, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Um, I've always said with Jurgen Klopp, uh, the reason that Klopp's players are willing to run through a brick wall for him is because he's so loyal to, towards them. He, you know, he backs them up. He believes in them. He even, you know, he tells them he believes in them and then he shows them that he believes in them by playing them, by saying, you know, by going into seasons where I feel he should be signing in certain positions and then he doesn't uh, because he's willing to, 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 let's say, give Elliot and Curtis Jones, et cetera, a chance. It could be the situation where, Klopp is saying, well, if I sign someone in, it's going to stagnate the growth of the Harvey Elliott's, of the Curtis Joneses of the world. And I don't really want to do that. And also Henderson is still of, of, a, of a level that, um, that I'm very happy with. And he's shown that by constantly starting him. So 
there are all these reasons that lead me to believe that they're not going to do it. But for people arguing that they're not doing it because they don't have the money, I can guarantee you that that's not the case. They do have the money available to go and sign him. It was meant to be um, a midfielder plus Darwin Nunes. We, I think we pretty much all know who that midfielder was. Uh, he ended up at Real Madrid. I won't go into the details of that one, but um, they had the money in place for two midfielders. I was going to say something, but I'll stop there. Yeah. <laughs> I guess the the thing with like Liverpool, maybe Spurs to an extent, is that you don't want to sign someone just because there's money there and the time's ticking at the end of the window. Um, at Burnley, it's pretty obvious what our, our problem is. I don't know how closely people follow the championship, but we've only scored two goals in our first three games. Um, it's not a knee-jerk reaction to that. It's just that we needed a striker anyway. We were trying to sign strikers earlier in the summer and didn't sign one for whatever reason. The most expensive signing that we've made, Scott Twine, has been injured and has only come off the bench in one game. So our attacking op- options have been limited. Um, it seems mad having talked about Forrest signing too many players early in the window to then come on and say, well, Birmingham's had 12 players, but we need more strikers. Um, but that's exactly what I'm doing because football fans are fickle, baby. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems to me like a striker is really the missing piece at Burnley now. We've created plenty of chances. We have all of the ball now with the new style that Vincent Company's brought to Turf more. It's really just that last missing piece. A striker who can run the channels with the fluid movement that we've got throughout the rest of the team and get on the end of the chances that we make as well. Um, it's all very well saying sign a player who can get you 15 to 20 league goals. I think every football team in every league, in every corner of the goal, wants a 15 to 20 goal striker. It's not necessarily as easy as doing that. Um, they don't grow on trees, but it's, it's certainly what we are We are looking to sign. Um, and, and fingers crossed we do get that done because I think it's been really obvious from our first three games that that's, that's what we really need at the moment. Gotcha. And for Spurs, we've obviously already made six signings. I forgot Jed Spence when I was talking about any of that, but keeping Emerson kind of puts him out of a position. But um, I think the most fascinating one is if you were keeping 50 million in case Zaniola was available or in case you wanted to go for Madison, I'm just saying Milan Skriniar still at Inter Milan. Maybe you just ring Inter Milan a few more times. You're like, is that Bastoni guy? Is he still stuck on staying? Because if not... Here's the money that you desperately need. Obviously, they already have missed out on several key targets uh, because they weren't able to move any of their own higher-profile players. So that's probably all I'm trying. I don't think I want to add another uh, attacking player, if I'm honest. There isn't even a number 10, in air quotes, in Conte's system. In theory, it gives you the ability to change systems more regularly, but are you really going to want to sign somebody like... uh, (laughs) Well, we apparently weren't that interested in Ericsson, but like a Zaniolo or like a Madison... Um, maybe even like an hour who apparently is going to Nottingham Forest along with 20 other people, um, knowing that they don't even have a spot in your, in your primary formation. I don't think so. So I think you just save that money and you try to get Bestoni one last time. You try for Gavardio one more time. If it doesn't happen in the summer, keep that money for January. Just try it all over again then. Uh, but ultimately I think Tottenham are probably going to stand just about pat. Uh, but we'll leave the show there. Thanks again to you two for coming on today. If you want to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a great time. 
Thanks for having me on, Kev. Um, yeah, I've been Tad. You can find me at Tad Predicts on Twitter. Um, follow at a Tad Predictable on Twitter as well. That's the podcast that I host. We do uh, game week preview, scoreline predictions uh, for each of the game weeks in the Premier League. Yeah, thanks for having me on as always. I've been Jamie Smith. I support Burnley and write and edit the No Name Ever newsletter, which is free and goes out by a Substack every Monday if you are particularly interested in, in more about Burnley. I do various Premier League bits as well that I normally post through my Twitter, which is at Jamie Smith Sport. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable or email us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again to you two, as always. Fantastic guests. Always love having both of you on. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.